Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm just going to prop this up. Amen. I'd like to just ask the Lord to bless and enable me tonight to minister his word, Lord. Lord, Heavenly Father, it's a great privilege and an honor, beloved God, to minister your word. You are the great I am and the King of all kings, God. And Lord, we want you to be glorified in everything, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, for divine anointing from on high, God, with this message that I bring tonight, Lord. I ask you, God, to help me, to enable me, and all the way through this message, I pray. And I thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth. I ask you these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. This message is called By the Truth. And if we turn to Proverbs chapter 23 and 23, we can read the scripture there. It says, By the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Proverbs 23 and chapter 23. Have I got it wrong? That will be the first thing. Matthew. You got it. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. So what does it mean to buy the truth and sell it not? Firstly, where do we find the truth? We must find God. Because God is truth. In answer to doubting Thomas, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the word of God is truth. Before his arrest in his prayer of intercession for his disciples, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And there's a beautiful Old Testament scripture which says, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. So the truth is God, amen. And when we look for the truth, we've got to look for God. We've got to look for God, and then we're going to find the truth, amen. The word of God reveals his will and his intention and plan for the salvation of all mankind. The Hebrew word for by is Ghana. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but... It's spelled G-A-N-A-H, which is meaning to acquire or to obtain. We can definitely acquire, obtain, and receive the truth. No matter which period of time we live in, and whatever the price, the truth can be obtained and should never be sold. When you think about Jesus was there in AD 33, he was there, amen. And we in 2016 today, the truth is still exactly the same. And it's available to us. We can still get the truth. We're not without the truth in this world and in this day and age. And this just might be that the year that the Lord is coming back again. So let's buy the truth and let's hold on to it and let's hang on to it and sell it not. Amen. The price is never an exchange of money. The price is the giving of our all unto God to spare no self-denial or sacrifice to obtain the truth. Realizing that, we, that what we have may have held as truth in the past is not the truth at all. And we need to let that go in order to obtain the truth of God. I think most people do want the truth, but not all are willing to give themselves in order to obtain the truth. 
It means sex. It means self-sacrifice. It means self-denial. It means giving up some things. Amen. But whatever we give up to live for God, whatever we give up to go to Him, Amen. He's going to give us a hundredfold back again, much, much more. Amen. Who, if you, who in this world is living, not living for God, has got a guarantee of going to heaven? Who in this world that's not living for God has that guarantee? Amen. None of us, but all of us in the world is living for God and we've got salvation. We have that guarantee that we can get to heaven and we all want to get there. Amen. And we have that guarantee as long as we stay living for God and serving him, we have that guarantee. Glory to God. Amen. That just, that just one of the things and the blessings we have in living for God. In a parable, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. Which, when a man has found this treasure, he hides it. He is filled with joy, and he wants that treasure so much that he sells all that he has to buy the field where the treasure is. In the time of Jesus, landowners often hid treasures, and a treasure might remain concealed if the person who had hid it died before he could retrieve it. Amen. And... um, and so some people, like working in the field or something, they can come across that, that treasure. Probably the central character of this parable is a peasant working in a wealthy landowner's field. And when plowing, he turns up a treasure of some description. Once he buys the field, the, the contents of the field belongs to him. So that treasure is his when he goes and he buys the field. It is, it is because he is protecting his treasure that he does not want to lose it, not at any cost. He hides it away and he goes and he gets enough money because he doesn't want to lose that treasure that he's found in the field. Not for anything does he want to lose it. There's no earthly possession has more value than the kingdom of heaven. Importantly, too, note that he is filled with joy when he finds the treasure. And that is exactly what happens to us when we come and find the truth. We are filled with joy. Amen. But you hold on to that treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. And when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is illustrations of what it is to get hold of the truth. Amen. How much we have to pay. What is the price of getting hold of the truth? These are illustrations all the way through. So he found the pearl and he stopped looking. He didn't look any further after that. He found what he was searching for and he found the way to make sure that this treasure was his own. The kingdom is available to us only by grace through faith. But genuine faith means absolutely embracing and yielding to God's reign. Not simply acknowledging it and then passing it by as if it did not exist. The kingdom of God is a treasure. And those who really believe it will sacrifice everything else in their lives to obtain that treasure. When these two parables are put side by side, there are contrasts that we can note. In the parable of the hidden treasure a man accidentally discovers something valuable. In the parable of the costly pool, the man is searching for something valuable. In like manner, one may hear of the good news of God when one least expects to hear it. Or one might be searching for the truth amidst a marketplace of many, many ideas. Biblical faith, sorry, the pairing of these two parables points to genuine biblical faith. 
a realization of our own spiritual depravity and a belief in the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do. Jesus taught many parables and we enjoy reading them. But what does a parable mean? The word parable comes from the Greek word paraboli. Once again, I'm not sure about my pronunciation, but paraboli. In the Greek, para means beside, and bello means to cast or throw. So parable, in a very basic sense, means to cast beside. A parable is an illustrative story by which a familiar idea is cast beside an unfamiliar idea in such a way that the comparison helps people to better understand and grasp the unfamiliar idea. There is always a spiritual and or moral lesson that will be learned from every parable. Parables have been called heavenly stories with earthly meanings or earthly stories with heavenly meanings. For example, in the parable which speaks of the blind leading the blind, it says, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall in the ditch? Now the earthly part of that message is, that parable is that a blind cannot need another blind man to safety. They will fall into a ditch. The heavenly part of that parable is that he, whose knowledge of divine truth is wanting, cannot lead others to the truth of God and salvation. Both will fall into error and confusion on the way. Going back to the man working in the field who unexpectedly found a treasure leads me to the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most beloved stories in the Bible. A Jewish man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho alone and was attacked by thieves. They beat him severely, stripped him of his clothes, robbed him of everything he had, and left him half dead beside the road. After a while, a Jewish priest comes along. He saw the poor man lying beside the road, but he passed by on the other side and did nothing to help him. Likewise, a Levite came along. He too saw the injured man and also passed by on the other side. Finally, a Samaritan came by and had compassion on the injured man. He bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, he set the injured man on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The following day, he took two pence and gave this money to the host, asking him to take care of the injured man. And the Samaritan said he would repay if the host spent more than that two pence. The Samaritan had to go away, but he promised that he would come back again. The man who was robbed and beaten found a pearl of great price in the Samaritan. He was not looking for a treasure, but simply attending to his normal duties in life. Of all that passed by, it would have been expected that the Samaritan would have crossed to the other side of the road and ignored the injured man there. But no, he had compassion. He was prepared to pay the full price for the recovery of this injured man, such as dressing and treating the wounds carrying him on his own beast to the inn where he would be safe. And there he nursed him through the night and paid for all his needs to be 
all his needs and to be healed and restored. And he promised that he would come back again. The very deep and wonderful spiritual meaning of this parable is of the fall of mankind and redemption through Jesus Christ. The Good Samaritan is a type of Jesus. Our beloved Savior paid the full price for our salvation. It was not easy or pleasant, and it wasn't an easy thing for him to do, but he paid the full price that we could be redeemed from that hopeless, broken, undone, and sinful condition to being free from sin, forgiven, cleansed, and inheritor of eternal life. We need to grasp hold of the plan of salvation that God has for each and every one of us. All of us are sinners, but by his grace we are washed by the blood of the Lamb. This wonderful parable points to Jesus Christ in so many ways. The price that Jesus prayed for our salvation was a huge price, price, excuse me, but he was willing to do that so that we could have salvation. We could enter into heaven, we could have righteousness, and we could cleanse cleansed and forgiven from all of our sins. Amen. It is sin that separates us from God. And we are all sinners, except that the blood of Jesus Christ washes us and cleans us from that sin when we go to him and obey his word. There is more spiritual meaning to this parable. Jesus tells the earthly story with the heavenly meaning of the Good Samaritan, because a certain lawyer wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, this lawyer is not a lawyer as we understand a lawyer today, but he is a lawyer who is an expert in the law of Moses. Jesus replied to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And the lawyer replied, Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy might, and thy neighbor as thyself. Here he is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and 5, and Leviticus 19 and 8. And then Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Perhaps the lawyer was pleased with himself by the answer that he had given to Jesus, but he would probably wipe the smile off his face, once Jesus had told the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to understand it. It's not enough to know it. But we need to do it. It needs to be done and it needs to be carried out. The lawyer knew the, the, the law backwards and forwards, but he wasn't living it. And Jesus pointed that out to him. In the Jewish culture at that time, in the order of hierarchy, the priests were at the top followed by the Levites, and then much further down with the Samaritans. So first, we have the priest that came upon the injured man. Being a religious man and top of the social hierarchy, you would expect him to stop and do what he could to help. But no, instead he kept going and crossed over to the other side of the road. Secondly, as the parable goes, we have a Levite. Levites were assistants to the priest, and second on the social hierarchy ladder. So you would expect him to stop and help, but no, he just did like the priest and he crossed over to the other side. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, even though they both lived in the land of Palestine and shared a similar religion. They hated each other. 
The Samaritans came from a different race of people to the Jews, and they considered each other enemies for hundreds of years. They refused even to talk to each other. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans, yet only a Samaritan, very low on the social hierarchy scale, stopped and attended to all the needs of the badly injured man, who was not a Samaritan, but a Jew. Amen. He really crossed the boundaries when he went and he helped that Jew that was lying on the road. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks this lawyer, Which now of these thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The lawyer answered, saying, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do likewise. He wasn't free anymore, that lawyer. He had the truth given to him there and then, and he could no longer, either had to obey it, or the only other thing was to disobey it. But now he knew the truth. He had been, the truth had been exposed and revealed to him, and now he knew it. And Jesus said, he must go and do likewise. What happens if a person has the truth, but becomes discontented and impatient and wants to sell the truth? As we see in the parable of the lost son, he asks his father for his inheritance before it was due him. And when he had received it, he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his substance on riotous living. He did not show any respect for his father, for, the, for his inheritance, or how he became an inheritor. When he was down and out, there was a famine in the land and he had no money to support himself. He had to find work. And the work he found was given to him by a Gentile, which was to take the swine to the fields and feed them there. Feeding pigs was a detestable job for a Jew. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat the food of the swine. We all know how this parable continues, and he realizes he is in a very bad way. Rock bottom, you might say. Even the servants in his father's household were better off than him. They had food, they had employment, and they had a kind master, and they had shelter. They were well off, and here he was, his father's son, feeding the pigs. He realized his sinful ways and heads back home to ask forgiveness from his father and request to be treated as one of the father's servants. Jesus portrays the father as waiting for his son, perhaps daily searching the distant road, hoping for his appearance. The father notices him while he's still a long way off. The father has never stopped loving his son and was eager to show him that love and to restore the relationship. The father runs to the son, and when the father reaches his son, not only does he throw his arms around him, but he greets him with a kiss of love. He is so filled with joy at his son's return that he doesn't even let his son finish his confession nor does he question or lecture his son. Instead, he unconditionally forgives him and accepts him back into fellowship. Don't forget, there's a spiritual, a heavenly meaning behind these parables. We're speaking of, we're seeing Jesus Christ here. We're seeing how he accepts us, amen. Unconditionally forgives and, and accepts us to be with him. The father running to his son, greeting him with a kiss, and his ordering the celebration is a picture of how our Heavenly Father feels towards sinners who repent. God greatly loves us, and he patiently waits for us to repent, 
so he can show us his mercy. We can go around in the world and be sinful and do sinful things, but God is always there waiting. And it doesn't matter to what depth that sin goes. It doesn't matter how far that sin goes. God is still waiting that we will turn around and we will realize he is God and ask him to forgive us and repent. And he's there waiting and his arms are outstretched. He's ready to receive us. He's ready to take us home to glory with him. He's ready to clean us up. He's ready to take away our sin and our suffering and that we can be with him forever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. The prodigal son was satisfied to return home, to return home as a slave. But to his surprise and delight, he is restored back into the full privilege of being his father's son. He had been transformed from a state of destitution and hopelessness to complete restoration. To buy the truth, the prodigal had to come to himself, go back to his father's house, ask for forgiveness, and humble himself. This is what the grace of God does for a penitent sinner who not only receives forgiveness but receives sonship as his children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. The father orders the servants to bring the best robe and put it on his son, which is a sign of dignity, honor, and proof of the prodigal's acceptance back into the family. A ring was put on his hand, which is a sign of authority and sonship, and also shoes were put on his feet, which is a sign of not being a servant, because servants didn't wear shoes. All these things represent what we receive in Christ upon salvation. The robe of the Redeemer's righteousness, Isaiah 61 and 10. The privilege of partaking of the spirit of adoption, Ephesians 1 and 5. The feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6 and 15. Fatted calves in those days were saved for special occasions such as the Feast of the Day of Pentecost. This was more than a party. It was a lavish celebration for the return of the lost son. The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103 verses 10 to 13 says, For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his love for those that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the father he has compassion for, or pitieth his children, and so the Lord has pity on those who fear him. Hallelujah. What a wonderful God. Why would we sell the truth? Why would we let it go? Amen. There's so much depth in having the truth. There's so much depth in living for Jesus. There's so much that he gives to us. Instead of condemnation and chastisement, there is rejoicing for a son who had been dead, but now is alive, who once was lost, but now is found. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the ladies, the national ladies, the prayer target is for prodigals this year. Amen. And I got, when, when that was announced, I got a vision of some prodigals coming back into this assembly. And my heart was beating. I was jumping with joy within. We wouldn't turn them away. We wouldn't say to them, where have you been and what have you been doing? You're not good enough to walk through these doors. We would welcome them. Amen. We would put our arms around them. We would hold them. We would encourage 
encourage them. We pray them through to the Holy Ghost. We spend time with them. Amen. And that's nothing to what God feels about these sinners. That's nothing to what God feels about us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. No condemnation, no chastisement. There is rejoicing for a son who had been dead, but now is alive, who once was lost and now was found. The prodigal obtained wisdom, was now open to instruction, and gained understanding at a high spiritual level. Excuse me. And now to the final and tragic character in the parable of the lost son. He, it is the oldest son who illustrates the attitudes of the scribes and the Pharisees. Outwardly, they lived blameless lives, but inwardly, the attitudes were abominable. This was true of the oldest son who worked hard, obeyed his father, and brought no disgrace to his family or to the townspeople. Yet, upon his brother's return, it is obvious by his words and actions that he is not showing love for his father or his brother. Instead of coming to the feast and being included in the reconciliation of the father and his son and celebrate his brother's return, he was angry and he remains in the field. This act of remaining in the field alone would have brought public disgrace upon the father. But the father, with great patience, goes to his angry and hurting son. He does not rebuke his son, but listens to his complaints and criticisms. The older brother's focus was on himself, and as a result, he has no joy in his brother's arrival home. So he is consumed with, so, with issues of justice. It says, Lo, these many years I have served you, that he fails to see the value of his brother's repentance and return. Both of these sons sold the truth, but one son realized his wrong ways and desired restoration. He said, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Matthew 7, 11 to 13 says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to, how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that seek him? The parable of the lost sheep is one of a series of three parables, namely the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Just as in other cases, Jesus taught these parables in a set of three for emphasis. And I illustrate this point of how much he cares by highlighting the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Didn't stop halfway, but went out until he found it. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoicing, he brings it back to the fold. He calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him. Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Five wise virgins 
had wisdom in that they obviously maintained a continuous level of commitment and dedication, and they were prepared and ready for the bridegroom when he came, not knowing the day or the hour. The foolish were on the same journey, equally equipped, but they did not maintain the needed level of commitment, and sadly, but inevitably, they missed the bridegroom. When the wise, wise virgins were asked by the foolish virgins to give them oil, the wise virgins said, Go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. In each parable, the character or the characters had to do something to buy the truth. In the field, he protects the treasure and buys the field. Looking for the goodly pearl, he finds the goodly pearl he, he, he stops looking after that, and he makes sure it's his own. The lost son came to himself, and in humility he returns home. The foolish virgins, virgins had to go to buy oil for themselves. I think that the wise virgins went and dwelt in the secret place of the Most High. Psalm 91 and 1 says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Perhaps the foolish virgins went to the secret place of the Most High, but didn't dwell there. Perhaps they visited occasionally, and they didn't stay there, and they didn't go deep into the secret place of the Most High. To get to the secret place of the Most High means to go, and it is a personal and regular commitment to get there. The secret place does not mean it is a place that cannot be found or is hard to get to and is only for a select few. No, the secret of this place is the personal, intimate, ongoing and private relationship between whosoever goes there and the Most High. It is a place of refuge, a place where one feels and enters the close presence and protection of the Almighty, a place to abide under His shadow. To dwell there means to habitually abide and spend time in the presence of the Almighty and building on our own personal relationship with God in whom we trust. It is a place to gain wisdom, instruction, and understanding. It is a place where we can have our lamps filled with Holy Spirit oil. Every individual has every right to have their own secret place with the Most High. Dwelling there will give an expectation of readiness for the bridegroom when he is going to come back and will give less place to selling the truth. We need to establish that relationship continuously with the Lord God. Speak to myself, I speak to all of us. It's a time and a place we are private and alone with the Lord. Amen. It's a time when it's a secret place. It's not for anybody else. You've got your own private time with the Lord, and so have I got my own private time. And there the Lord is going to strengthen us. There he's going to speak to us. There he's going to encourage us. There he's going to lead us. How do you think the Lord feels if we don't go there? He's waiting for us. Amen. He wants to impart things to us. He wants to give us 
strength. He wants us to gain greater understanding. He wants us to hear from Him. He wants us to receive that protection. We need to have that special and close walk with the Lord. And your walk with God is your walk with God. Amen. And my walk with God is my walk with God. It's that secret place of the Most High. We shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Amen.